0: Discerninghearts.com presents a Lord of the Rings spiritual retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher. Father Gallagher was ordained in 1979 as a member of the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. He obtained his doctorate from the Gregorian University and has dedicated many years of extensive ministry to retreats, spiritual direction, and teaching on the spiritual life. He is also the author of several books on the spiritual teachings of St. Ignatius of Loyola. And the life of Venerable Bruno Lanteri, founder of the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. Father Gallagher is also featured in several series produced by EWTN, including Living the Discerning Life, a Lord of the Rings spiritual retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome, Father Gallagher. Thank you, Chris. What a delight to be able to discuss the work of a literary giant, J.R.R. Tolkien. Why would his work be important for us, Father Gallagher?
1: The starting point, I think, is that we, we just enjoy the book. You know, at the turn of the century, there were four polls that were done asking people to name their choice for the book of the century. And in all four cases, the Lord of the Rings was the was the the book that was most voted as the the book of the century. In one of those polls, it was second to the Bible because that was included. Obviously, an awful lot of people just really enjoy the book. And, of course, with the movies, that radius expanded even more. And I'll read here a sentence from Tolkien's foreword to The Lord of the Rings in which he describes the primary reason why he wrote the book. And he says this, The prime motive was the desire of a tale-teller to try his hand at a really long story that would hold the attention of readers, amuse them, delight them, and at times maybe excite them or deeply move them. So that's really what he was about, above all, and I think many of the readers of the book, probably of those who are listening to this conversation, will recognize themselves in what Tolkien says here a book that holds their attention, amuses them, delights them, and at times excites them and even deeply moves them. I certainly share that myself. I still remember, I don't remember exactly what year of high school this was, but it was in the the later 60s when someone gave us, I think for a Christmas gift, a copy of The Hobbit. And those were the years when Tolkien was first really exploding here in the United States. I began reading it and was absolutely fascinated by it and really didn't stop till I finished. And not long after, we got copies of The Lord of the Rings. And ever since then, uh, everything that Tolkien says here is certainly true in my case. I've just really enjoyed the book book very, very deeply. Well, that's the first thing. This is a marvelous work of literature. Now, the, the reason specifically, however, having said that, while why we would spend some time discussing the Lord of the Rings from a spiritual perspective is that Tolkien himself was profoundly a Catholic. His mother was a convert and she paid a high price for it. We'll look at a few quotations from his letters and we'll watch him say this. His um, mother converted when Tolkien was still very young and was immediately rejected by her family and uh, forced to live in, in circumstances of great poverty. Her husband had already died. Her husband died when Tolkien was four years old. So she was left to herself financially and to take care of her two sons. So that for Tolkien, his, his Catholic faith comes to him in a very deep way from the very early years of his life through the witness of his mother. I think probably the best thing for us to do is just to look at some quotations from his letters and we'll let him describe what his Catholic faith meant to him. And that will explain for us why we would look for truths in The Lord of the Rings as a work of literature which reflect an image, portray for us, reveal to us even, I'd say, in a certain sense the the truths on which we we live our lives as Christians, as followers of Christ. So here is a letter in which Tolkien is writing to his son Michael. His son Michael is 21 years old and Tolkien himself is 49. And it's a long letter in which Tolkien is answering most likely questions from his 21-year-old son about marriage as his son is beginning to think of this in his own life. And Tolkien has described many of the struggles that he went through in his own life, which was not easy, losing both parents at an early age, his father when he was four, his mother when he was 13, and living in very difficult circumstances. Uh, then, of course, as a soldier in World War I and all that he experienced there, in many different ways, he's gone through this. And now he says this to his son, Michael, Out of the darkness of my life, so much frustrated, I put before you the one great thing to love on earth the blessed sacrament which is remarkable the one great thing to love on earth there you will find romance glory honor fidelity and the true way of all your loves on earth and more than that death by the divine paradox that which ends life and demands the surrender of all and yet by the taste or foretaste of which alone can you seek in your earthly relationships love, faithfulness, and joy, and so on. Can what you seek in your earthly relationships, love, faithfulness, joy, be maintained or take on that complexion of reality of eternal endurance which every man's heart desires? As this 49-year-old father writes to his 21-year-old son, the Blessed Sacrament, the one great thing to love on earth. And now another letter to his son Michael, who is now 43 and Tolkien is 71. And this is a letter in which, most likely, because we don't have the letters of his son to which Tolkien is responding, but from what Tolkien writes, most likely his son has shared some struggles with faith. And so his father writes to him about this, and now it speaks about what will strengthen faith. The only cure for sagging or fainting faith is communion. Though always itself perfect and complete and inviolate, the Blessed Sacrament does not operate completely and once for all in any of us. Like the act of faith, it must be continuous and grow by exercise. Frequency is of the highest effect. And then he says, seven times a week is more nourishing than seven times at intervals. And in fact, Tolkien was himself a daily communicant. Mm. And uh, in the description, of a day of his life in the marvelous biography by Humphrey Carpenter. He describes a typical day of Tolkien's life when he was teaching at Oxford, which was a great part of his life, how he would rise in the morning, wake his sons, and then together with them bike down to the nearby church for the 7.30 Mass in the morning, and that's how his day would begin. He continues, I myself am convinced by the Petrine claims that is, that the Holy Father is truly the successor of Peter, willed by Christ to be such. Nor, looking around the world, does there seem much doubt which, if Christianity is true, is the true Church, the temple of the Spirit dying but living, corrupt but holy, self-reforming and re-arising. But for me, that Church, of which the Pope is the acknowledged head on earth, has as its chief claim, that it is the one that has and still does ever defended the Blessed Sacrament and given it most honor and put it as Christ plainly intended in the prime place. So that what what strikes Tolkien above all about the Catholic Church and his Catholic faith is that this is the Church that has always held in honor of the Blessed Sacrament and put it in the prime place, he says, as Christ plainly intended. And now he has an interesting read on Christ's words to Peter, feed my sheep, was his last charge to St. Peter. And since his words are always first to be understood literally, I suppose them to refer primarily to the bread of life. So as Tolkien reads those words of Jesus to Peter, the feeding of his sheep, Tolkien sees as primarily referring to the bread of the blessed sacrament of the Eucharist. Hmm. And now he speaks a little more personally. I witnessed half-comprehending, because he was still very young, as I mentioned, his mother died when he was 13, I Witnessed witnessed half-comprehending the heroic sufferings and early death in extreme poverty of my mother who brought me into the church. And in fact, it was clear to him that it was his mother's firm decision to become a Catholic and her refusal to be swayed from that and thereby the loss of the financial support that she so much needed uh, as a widow with two young children that caused the life of poverty that led eventually to her illness and to her early death. So that for Tolkien, his mother really was a martyr for her faith and his love for his mother and his love for his Catholic faith were very very deeply rooted and entwined really in his heart. So he witnessed uh, the the price that his mother paid for her, her faith, and he says, I received the astonishing charity of, this would be Father Francis Morgan, who was a priest of the oratory in Birmingham, in fact, who had known, blessed John Henry Newman, who died maybe about 12 years before, and who was asked by Tolkien's mother, when she knew that she was not likely to live much longer, if he would be willing to be the legal guardian of her two sons. And he accepted that and was an enormous help. In fact, even during his mother's life, Father Morgan helped her and the, the family in many ways, financially and religiously. So that Tolkien always had a great, great reverence and love and esteem for Father Francis Morgan. And then he says But I fell in love with the Blessed Sacrament from the beginning. And by the mercy of God, have never fallen out again. I almost ceased to practice my religion, especially at Leeds. And that's those were the five years when he was at the University of Leeds and at 22 North Moor Road, the first years that he taught at Oxford. So these would be in his, the years of his 30s, roughly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not for me, the hound of heaven. So that relentless chasing in his conscience, so to speak, calling him back. But the never-ceasing, silent appeal of tabernacle and the sense of starving hunger, what always brought him back and became the real center of his life and his faith was the Blessed Sacrament, the never-ceasing, silent appeal of tabernacle and the sense of starving hunger. Now I pray for you all, his children, unceasingly, that the healer shall heal my defects and that none of you shall ever cease to cry. And he gives this in Latin, blessed is he, who comes in the name of the Lord. Yes.
0: It's interesting, that phrase that you use, the never-ceasing appeal, that silent appeal of the Blessed Sacrament. So many people who have left the, the Church or left the practice of their faith, when they return in what has been termed either a conversion or a reconversion, they speak of how they missed the Blessed Sacrament. They didn't know how else to articulate it. It, it. Whether it was a rupture because of what a, a perceived conflict with church teaching or something like that, but the overwhelming sense, their desire was that they they missed the Blessed Sacrament. They missed receiving that, and it does seem to have that pull, doesn't it?
1: Well, it's right that it be so because it's really the center of everything. The Blessed Sacrament is simply Jesus. God. That's where we find the deepest answer to the restlessness of our heart, to use Augustine's phrase. And that certainly, as you can see, was very true for Tolkien himself. I've never seen anywhere in his writings where he specifies further what he means by, I almost ceased to practice my religion during those years. For him, what draws him back is the blessed sacrament. It's the one thing that he can never be without. As he says, the sense of starving hunger, or as you Highlight the never ceasing silent appeal of the tabernacle. Mm. Now, I, I, the reason why we're doing this is because I think we can already see just from these quotes thus far why we as Catholics and Christians feel so at home in The Lord of the Rings. Even though there's nothing explicitly Christian in The Lord of the Rings, it takes place in an age in Tolkien's mythology, it takes place in an age that is pre Christian. The Incarnation has not yet happened. So there is nothing at all that is explicitly Christian in it. And yet, the Christian reader, the Catholic reader, instinctively feels very at home. And these are the roots of why that's the case. Because Tolkien's worldview is essentially founded in his Catholic and Christian faith. So that we, get, we feel that there's a certain harmony. We're, we're at home there. Well, let's look at a little bit more of this. This is a letter to his son Christopher, with whom, more than any of his other children, he shared the Lord of the Rings. Christopher loved it deeply, and in fact, if we have the Silmarillion today and a number of the other writings of of Tolkien, it's because Christopher dedicated a good deal of his life to publishing the things that his father never did publish before the end of his life. And so he's writing to him, this is also during World War II in 1944, and he says to Christopher, If you don't do so already, make a habit of the praises, in quotes. I use them much in Latin. And so he he lists the different prayers that are very frequent in his life of prayer, and and I'll just give them in English. So he says, um, he lists them, the glory be to the Father, which is just a prayer of praise. Then the Glory to God in the Highest, as we say it at Mass, the uh, Laudate Dominum, which is Psalm 117, it's the shortest of the Psalms with just the two verses, Praise the Lord all you nations, acclaim Him all you peoples, Strong is His love for us, He is faithful forever. And then another Psalm, which he, he liked very much, Laudate Puri Dominum, that is Psalm 113, Praise O servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord and so on. These are all prayers of praise. Uh, the Magnificat, Mary's Magnificat, which is also a hymn of praise. The Litany of Loretto, the Invocations of Mary, that classic prayer to Mary, Lie to Thy Patronage, Holy Mother of God. And he says to Christopher, If you have these prayers by heart, you will never need for words of joy. It is also a good and admirable thing to know by heart, the Eucharistic prayer, then called the Canon of the Mass, which is remarkable. For you can say this in your heart, if ever hard circumstance keeps you from hearing Mass. This again is during World War II.
0: We'll return to A Lord of the Rings Spiritual Retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app where you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John S. of Deacon James Keating, Father Donald Haggerty, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more. They're all available on the free Discerning Hearts app. Over 3,000 spiritual formation programs and prayers, all available to you with no hidden fees or subscriptions. Discerning Hearts Catholic Podcast, dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola
1: Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That
2: is enough for me. Amen. An easy way to help discerning hearts is to follow us on Instagram and Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Our Instagram and Facebook pages are vibrant spaces where you can engage with daily inspirational quotes from the saints, streaming DH broadcast encounters, and updates about our latest offerings. On our YouTube channel, you'll find a treasure trove of video podcasts, interviews, guided meditations and prayers, and reflections from renowned spiritual leaders. These resources are carefully curated to provide guidance, wisdom, and insights that can help you discern life's challenges with a sense of purpose and peace. By subscribing, following, and engaging with Discerning Hearts on these platforms, you're not only enriching your own spiritual journey, but also helping to spread awareness of our mission. Every like, share, and comment helps us reach more people who are seeking meaningful growth and connection. So, please take a moment to follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel as well, and then share with a friend. Join the Discerning Hearts community and embark on a transformative spiritual journey alongside fellow seekers. Your engagement not only benefits you, but also contributes to the growth and impact of Discerning Hearts.
0: We now return to a Lord of the Rings spiritual retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher. Father Gallagher, in his time, there was only one Eucharistic prayer. Now we have four. So the one that you're referring to is actually what we know as Eucharistic prayer number one. It might be helpful for folks who want to go back and reflect on that Eucharistic prayer that Tolkien himself used. They could go back and find that Eucharistic prayer number one, right?
1: Yes, that was the, the one Eucharistic prayer at the time. That's why I say it's, it's a little remarkable, because the first Eucharistic prayer is fairly lengthy. And it's interesting that uh, Tolkien, if he's advising his son to do, to do this, most obviously himself did this. So that at times when it was difficult to get to Mass, there it would be, and he could pray through it. It's another window, I would say, into the centrality of the Eucharist in his life. This next letter is to the widow of Charles Williams, who was one of these writers, the group called the Inklings, which C.S. Lewis and uh, Tolkien would be the best known, but certainly also Charles Williams. And he has just died. Tolkien has just learned about this. And he writes a short note of sympathy to uh, Williams' widow. And he says this, Father, Gervais Matthew is saying Mass at Blackfriars on Saturday at 8 a.m., and I shall serve him, so he'll be serving the Mass. But of course, I shall have you all in my prayers immediately and continually, for such as they are worth. Forgive this halting note, yours very sincerely, J.R.R. R. Tolkien. Which is just another little window into how much his faith is a natural part of his life. Uh, everything will center there and then a quote which, is, which you'll find in any writing which looks at the Lord of the Rings from a spiritual and Christian perspective and this is to a Jesuit priest Father Robert Murray who has written to Tolkien describing his sense of the compatibility uh, of the Lord of the Rings with the Order of Grace comparing the Lady Galadriel to the Virgin Mary and uh, Tolkien likes this, and he writes back to Father Murray, and he says, I think I know exactly what you mean by the order of grace, and of course by your references to Our Lady, on which all my own small perception of beauty, both in majesty and simplicity, is founded. Now that's a remarkable statement, that his perception of what is beautiful is, both in majesty and in simplicity, his whole sense of of that beauty is based upon Our Lady. And then the sentence that is most frequently quoted, the Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, unconsciously so at first, but consciously in the revision. So this is very clear to Tolkien that what we're going to find in the Lord of the Rings, even though it is in no way explicitly Christian, It is, nonetheless, a fundamentally religious work and even Catholic work. I will see a little bit more about that as we go along, in what sense it can be called a Catholic work. And Tolkien writes, unconsciously, it was this unconsciously so at first, so that in the actual writing of the book he was not thinking at all about any religious or Catholic sense to the work. But he was consciously thinking of this and aware of this in the revision, which led then to its final state and its publication.
0: You know what's so remarkable about that Father Gallagher is that it really highlights, doesn't it, the fact that someone who is so steeped in their faith or some like a tea bag in in a cup with hot water. I mean, here he is so steeped in his experience of his faith that it just comes out as part of the work that he's doing. And in this case it's in his literary work. And it may not have been the intention in the beginning, but because it's so a part of who he is and that expression of it, it began to appear.
1: Well, you know, a reflection that comes to me as you say that is, here is his mother, Mabel, who converts to the Catholic faith and pays a very severe price for it. The financial privations which lead to illness and and, and an early death. But because she was so strong in her Catholic faith and so unswerving in her fidelity to it, look what happens. Her son grows up in that faith and he writes this work now which has touched millions of lives throughout the world. I've thought about this sometimes. Here is the hidden courage of this woman who adheres in spite of great difficulty to her Catholic faith and look at the fruit that has come from it. It's just remarkable. Christians and Catholics throughout the entire world, and and not only those who already share the Christian faith, but many who do not. You know, sometimes you'll, you'll hear in conversion stories that along the way the person read the Lord of the Rings and discovered there a something which they'd been looking for, hadn't known how to name, and didn't even yet know what it was, but now knew existed somewhere in the world. Because of reading the Lord of the Rings and all that it contains.
0: Do you think Father Gallagher might have something to do that it's a feast of virtue that it, no matter who it is that's reading it, it's so compelling because it is so it is just so rich in the expression of virtue
1: Well I would say I think Tolkien would say that it is, if it is compelling, in the first place, it's compelling just because it's a remarkably written work of literature, which does all of those things for millions of readers that he hoped it would do. It, it moves them, engages them, amuses them, excites them, all the different things that he said it would do. So that's the first thing. It's simply a first-class um, masterpiece as a work of literature. But along the way, as we're saying now, because Tolkien wants this to be now I'm going to read you the sentence. This is from a later letter. And this is from a letter to W.H. Auden, the poet, who really loved The Lord of the Rings and had written a nice letter to Tolkien about this. And Tolkien says to Auden, I actually intended it, The Lord of the Rings, I actually intended it to be consonant with Christian thought and belief. So that what, what, even though he's writing a work that is set in mythological times, that is set many ages before the Incarnation will happen. Tolkien writes it in such a way and intends that it be written in such a way that a Christian reader will find himself at home with it, mm-hmm. will not find anything in this that will contradict his Christian faith. And that's, what, as I said earlier, I think the Christian readers really feel that, that they really feel at home with this, even though, again, there is, there's no church, there's no incarnation there's no bible there are no sacraments none of that is present but christians find themselves very much at home in this book because tolkien consciously wanted his work of mythology to be true according to his understanding uh, of what is true in his worldview which is shaped by his christian faith so absolutely now having said all of that and then yes then we're going to find virtue there And as we continue in these conversations, I'd like to highlight some of those virtues as we go forward. That is why, continuing to Father Murray, I have not put in or have cut out practically all references to anything like religion or cults or practices in the imaginary world. The religious element is absorbed into the story and the symbolism. We'll say a little more about that in a moment. However, that is very clumsily put, he continues, and sounds more self-important than I feel. He's always um, (laughs) self-deprecating. There's Mm. a kind of humility about him. Very, very strong opinions about things. But a, a real sense of humility about his own writing. For, he says, as a matter of fact, I have consciously planned very little. And should chiefly be grateful for having been brought up since I was eight in a faith that has nourished me and taught me all the little that I know. And he goes on to reference his mother, and that I owe to my mother, who clung to her conversion and died young, largely through the hardships of poverty resulting from it, from her Catholic faith. And this is a little bit later, and this is a commentary on W.H. Auden's review of the third volume of The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King and he says in the lord of the rings the conflict is not basically about freedom though that is naturally involved and this is remarkable it is about god and his sole right to divine honor that is to say that the key issue in the lord of the rings is who will be god and the eldar these are the the high elves and the númenorians believed in the one with a capital Oh, the one, the true God, and held worship of any other person an abomination. And here's the real conflict in the Lord of the Rings. Sauron desired to be a God-king and was held to be this by his servants. If he had been victorious, he would have demanded divine honor from all rational creatures. So that what Sauron wants is himself to be God, to be held as God by his servants, by the whole world, if he can win dominion over it and to be worshipped as God. So that the essential conflict in the Lord of the Rings is who will be God, whether the one, the true God, or Sauron. And then a final quote. This is from a response to a woman named Deborah Webster. This is in 1958. If you read through Tolkien's letters, it's really remarkable that people would send him these letters. He got enormous numbers uh, stacks and stacks of mail and yet when he would respond to these um, just like the Lord of the Rings is a long sprawling tale his letters tend to be like that too so he says to her um, I was born in 1892 lived my early years in the Shire that is he lived in the the uh, country of the Midlands in England and that country experiences the root of his love that you see in depicting the Shire. In a pre-mechanical age he says, or more important, I am a Christian which can be deduced from my stories. So that tells us something fundamental about the Lord of the Rings, that you can read the Lord of the Rings and from that deduce that the author is a Christian. I am a Christian and in fact a Roman Catholic. The latter fact of his Catholic faith perhaps cannot be deduced that is from the Lord of the Rings. And then he quotes one critic and obviously favorably. The one critic by letter asserted that the invocations of Elbereth, now to describe who Elbereth is would take us pretty deep into the mythology of the Lord of the Rings, but she's something of a merry figure, uh, something of an angelic figure in all times of great trial and stress the the elves turned to her, Frodo and Sam. In point, at times of stress, we'll see some of this as we go along. Invoke the aid of Elbereth, and so asserted that the invocations of Elbereth and the character of Galadriel, who is a figure of great nobility, the chief of the elves, as directly described or through the words of Gimli and Sam, were clearly related to Catholic devotion to Mary. So that as you read the Lord of the Rings, figures like Elbereth and Lady Galadriel are clearly related to the way Catholics relate to Mary. Another saw in Waybread, this is the Lembus, again we'll come back to this, the the Waybread of the Elves, which sustains Sam and Frodo on that agonizing, painful journey through Mordor to the Mount Doom. Another saw in Waybread, the Lembus, Viaticum which is what that word means, Viviaticum, that's the bread of the way. And the reference to its feeding of the will being more potent when fasting. In fact, Sam and Frodo discover this when all other food gives out on the last stage of their journey and all they have is the lembus and they eat it fasting, it, gra- it gives them even greater strength of will to continue. And, and so this, this author or critic sees in all of this a derivation of the Eucharist. That is... Far greater things, like Mary and the Eucharist, may color the mind in dealing with the lesser things of a fairy story. So, having gone through these quotations from Tolkien's letters, I think we get a very clear sense of why we love the book, and why we feel so much at home with it, and why we're embarking on this set of conversations in which we're going to look at, uh, as you said, Chris virtue, or or various ways in which the story illuminates and exemplifies aspects of our Christian life and faith.
0: And I think in some ways, Father Gallagher, even just in listening to what you've just said, I think there is the potential to be able to also recognize or begin to learn to recognize those expressions, those experiences that were god may be revealing himself in ways that are not as overt that we've come accustomed in the experience of our religious practice i guess what i'm trying to say is that we begin to see those elements not only in this literature but maybe train the heart to begin to look for it in other ways not just in literature or film or or music but also maybe in, in around creation does that make sense
1: What you touch on is something that Tolkien describes in his classic essay entitled on Fairy Stories, in which he explains why stories like The Lord of the Rings, or let's say C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, the, the three volumes that he wrote along the same lines, one of the reasons why these are of such value to us, and he calls this recovery. And what he means by that is that sometimes truths that are there in our own lives, that we don't see, or we've, we've kind of have gotten out of focus for us, but are there and are important, are recovered. We see them more clearly. When we see them in a different setting, we recover them in the truth of our own lives. So that's very much a fact of what can happen as one reads The Lord of the Rings.
0: Any final thoughts, Father Gallagher?
1: Well, I suppose the um, underlying thought in all of this is the invitation to consider... Reading something of the Lord of the Rings, which would be the, uh, far better than anything we can say here as a way to touch upon its richness. But I think what we've said thus far indicates that there will be a real richness when we begin to open its pages.
0: Thank you so much, Father Gallagher. Thank you, Chris. You've been listening to a Lord of the Rings spiritual retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, which is to offer authentic and rock solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for A Lord of the Rings Spiritual Retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher.